welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction This podcast is part of a series where we're talking about why and how consultation skills promote better and safer care, focusing on each module in turn. Effective consultation skills have been repeatedly shown to contribute to safer, more accurate and more patient-centred interactions. Clinicians who consult skillfully make fewer errors and they also deliver care of better quality which in turn means they conform to the expectations of regulatory bodies such as the GMC or the NMC. So in each of these, how do these consultation skills promote better and safer care chapters, there are two examples. One is of a patient with a bad sore throat, and the second is a patient who says, I would like some sleeping pills. These very common scenarios need accurate clinical assessment and an effective therapeutic relationship must also be created for the right care to be offered in line with each patient's specific needs. However, such consultations can run into problems if the right consultation skills are not used. This could include conflicts, for example, if the clinician and the patient disagree about the treatment or the investigations. Safety incidents can arise if important clinical information is missed because of poor information gathering skills. Sometimes good treatment plans go wrong or fail completely if the patient's own point of view and their own needs are not properly understood because this means patients don't carry out plans. In some worst case scenarios, clinicians can be subject to complaints if things go wrong or if the patient is unhappy with how the consultation went. Many of these adverse things can be completely prevented if the right skills are used in the right way at the right time. Every part of the consultation offers opportunities for curiosity and inquiry using effective listening skills to improve the information available to the clinician and that helps to ensure that care is fully personalised to the needs of the individual patient. By exploring these two clinical situations in detail, each chapter will demonstrate the benefits of the relevant skills very clearly. So why have we chosen really bad sore throat and sleeping pills as clinical scenarios. Let's think about a really bad sore throat first. There's really no such thing as a sore throat. There's always a patient present who has the sore throat and for them the sore throat is only one aspect of their whole problem. Clinicians need to be able to maintain an open mind about what any particular patient's sore throat is really all about and avoid jumping to conclusions early on. Many clinicians start by thinking a sore throat is a straightforward situation and they focus on asking themselves questions like, is this viral or bacterial? Shall I give antibiotics or shall we not give antibiotics? This internal focus can mean important aspects of the patient's story are missed. However, thinking about the sore throat beforehand and thinking about the skills that are needed can help the clinician make a safer and more accurate assessment and plan. Thinking about the scenario when somebody says, can I have some sleeping tablets, is also quite similar. 
patients who are disturbed, stressed or distressed, may sometimes introduce their quite complicated problem with a seemingly simple request such as, can I have some sleeping tablets? Just as there is no such thing as a sore throat, there's no single answer to the question of whether a patient will benefit from sleeping tablets. Successful and safe consulting in this situation means that a clinician must be able to use the generalist skill of placing the patient's problem within their own specific context. However, as most sleeping tablets have a potential for addiction, and they might not even improve sleep very much, many clinicians have a core attitude that sleeping tablets are not helpful. Thus, they may mentally answer the patient's closed question of, can I have some sleeping tablets, with a kind of mental immediate, no, you can't. Coming to the consultation with a fixed view like this can make clinicians less curious about the full story that they need to hear from the patient and can affect the accuracy of the treatment plan. Now we're going to specifically explore the consultation skills from TALP Module 3, Skills for Effective Information Gathering, and have a think about how they can make for more accurate care. Now there's a lot of meat in this module really, and it's worth going in detail into the first three or four methods for improving your skills. We're going to focus in this discussion about picking up on clues and cues and trying to really understand why it makes a difference to know what a patient is thinking. Can you tell me something about a patient with a sore throat, Avil? Yeah, I'm going to talk about a, a video that I saw. Uh, which I think is helpful. It was, it was based on a telephone consultation, really. So this is Ricky's story. Ricky was 20 and he contacted the practice saying, I've had a really bad sore throat, can I speak to someone about it? And on the call, he sounded really relieved and said, thank you so much for ringing me back today. And it became established that it saw, his throat had been sore since he woke up, so only for a few hours. He was a bit hoarse initially, which seemed to be wearing off, and he was otherwise completely well and doing all his normal activities, eating and drinking and breathing normally, no other symptoms. And at that point, the clinician talked to him, gave some general advice about paracetamol, hot drinks, and some safety netting advice along the lines of, do call back if things get worse. Thanks for sharing that, Avril. On the face of it, that sounds like a reasonable clinical assessment. Yeah, I think so. But then the point is, um, this issue was raised by another colleague who, who felt rather aggrieved because Ricky called them urgently later the very same day, saying they needed more urgent attention. And so another consultation happened very quickly afterwards. And that, that's what highlighted that there might have been a bit of a problem. And I'm wondering if you can comment just on the face of it about what things you think the clinician might have missed out. So there was a clue that I heard and I think that the clinician missed that clue, which was that expression that Ricky used, thanks so much for ringing me back today. And that would really prick up my ears to think, actually, that sounds like a relief. And it sounds like maybe slightly out of proportion with perhaps the clinical situation that Ricky was presenting with. Mm. I, th I think that's true, yeah. Do, do you think the clinician could have asked about any other things as well? So the clinician hadn't, sought to really find out what this all meant to Ricky himself so his thoughts his concerns his worries from his perspective what was this all about what was he hoping would happen today did he have his own thoughts about what this actually might be all about I think you've hit the nail on the head there 
because um, when we looked at what had happened later, there was a much more complicated picture that emerged. When the second clinician did ask Ricky about what he was concerned and worried about, he was a bit hesitant at first, but using encouraging skills like go on and so on, he explained that he was studying drama at the university and actually he'd been really thrilled because he was awarded the lead role in the term's biggest production, which is obviously quite a thing if you're an actor. And he'd been out to celebrate in town. Now, initially, the clinician thought that Ricky was concerned that the hoarseness and sore throat might interfere with his acting work, which, which kind of makes sense. But actually, Nicky said, no, it wasn't that exactly. Now, again, there's a clue there. When somebody says it's not that exactly, what they really mean is there's something else. Yeah. So the clinician encouraged them and, and said, well, go on, tell me what else you're thinking about. And Ricky then said, what on earth could it be? What could have caused this? Now, the clinician could just say, well, it sounds like a viral sore throat. But actually they said, well, Ricky, what, what are you thinking about this? What's made you ask these questions? And it turned out that Ricky had some actually quite more significant clinical things going on. He did go out to celebrate, got rather drunk, uh, went to a nightclub and then had unprotected oral and anal sex after that. This actually turned out to be his first ever sexual experience, so quite a big night for him one way and another. But he googled the next morning and it said you can get gonorrhea in your throat. He was so freaked by that that he turned Google off and contacted the practice straight away for some advice because he thought somebody would examine his throat, tell him that everything was fine. So Obviously, that couldn't happen because it's a bit more complicated than that. Eventually, the, the second colleague who got this full story referred him to the local gum clinic for proper tests mm -hmm. and for consideration of post-exposure prophylaxis for HIV, which is a much safer outcome for Ricky. Had he not phoned back, he would have been at risk of a variety of sexually transmitted illnesses, some of which have got very, very long-term consequences. Yeah, well, I mean, it really makes me think there that without, without asking Ricky directly about that there's just no way any clinician would have come up with that story as, as a background because obviously it's a very you know it's a, a unique situation to Ricky isn't it so his thoughts what's happened to him and his thoughts and his concerns are unique to him so the idea that this is a simple problem like a sore throat goes out the window really doesn't it because without these his perspective then there's, there's no way to, to sort of move, move forward is there yeah I think that's a really Good point. And I think for me as a clinician, finding out what people are actually worried or concerned about or what they're thinking about their symptoms has provided numerous examples of useful clinical information. It's not just nice to know, but it changes the clinical management massively. Preventing somebody from getting HIV changes their health for the next 30 or 40 years. And yet it takes about three seconds to do that. Uh, and it's always interesting, too, because as, as I think you were saying, each individual's concerns and, and worries and specific thoughts are very individual to them. So it's always interesting to know what people are thinking about, always illuminating. And of course, it really helps you change your management plan to meet that individual. And I also think that really understanding about a person, their life and what's important to them for each individual encounter you're building rapport you're developing trust and each individual encounter becomes more productive as time goes on so there's just so many benefits to it mm. so you're building a relationship within the consultation but over time as well because I mean you can imagine with Ricky if you'd happened to see him I don't know about his athlete's foot or something and he felt that you were interested in him and respected him as a person and you got on together then it might have been easier for him to say instead of 
slightly going around the houses and saying, I've got a sore throat. He might have rung up and said, I trust you, doctor. Tell me, have I got gonorrhea? Which would have meant you got to the point a lot more quickly in a way. So you're right, this happens. This helps over time as well as within individual consultations. Absolutely. So for a clinician who's thinking about developing these skills, what next? Okay, well, obviously, one of the first things to do is to read the chapters in, in Module 3 about effective information gathering and to digest the content. And in particular, there's a lot of very specific exercises in there which help to develop the intensity and accuracy of your listening. So, for example, playing a recording and stopping every 10 to 15 seconds and then see if you can write down or repeat the exact words the patient use and describe all the other observations that could be made, such as whether they hesitate or their, their tone of voice or incomplete sentences. So that, for example, playing back that bit where Ricky says, oh, thank you so much for ringing me back today, tells you, first of all, that he's quite relieved and it's important, but also he's saying today, not tomorrow, not next week, not some other time, but oh, you've got back to me promptly. That tells you that for Ricky, there's something a bit more urgent going on. So even those few seconds can give you a lot of information. Noticing facial expressions on video or, or when you see people in person, body language, the, people, the way people are dressed even, can give you helpful clues. And I think one of the really important skills that we've mentioned in every module, but in particular in information gathering, is thinking about what the patient's hinting at without being explicit. And these skills are explored in Talc 3.6, can reading between the lines make for more accurate diagnosis? Because there's a bit of a hint here that there's something more serious going on. And even when the second clinician saw Ricky, and Ricky tells the story about being an actor, and the clinician actually jumps to a slightly wrong conclusion and says, oh, I think, are you worried about your hoarse voice when you're speaking? Which is reasonable, but actually turns out to be wrong. So Keeping on thinking about the clues and cues makes for more accurate diagnosis in the long run. It's almost a situation where if something seems a bit too straightforward, or if it's a situation where you think, we've only had a sore throat for an hour or two, why are you phoning up? That should really provoke some curiosity mm. and, some, and some further listening and seeking to understand, because that in itself is almost sort of an amber flag, isn't it, to try yeah. and help understand? Yes, things which are a little bit anomalous uh, are, are often, as you say, they're little flags for curiosity and inquiry, to use your own phrase, which I think is very helpful. And Do you know what? I actually think it's interesting, too. It's kind of interesting to know why somebody with a sore throat has rung up after an hour. Uh, and, and for me, that makes work less stressful and more enjoyable as well. Uh, it's ritually rewarding too, really. Um, I suppose one of the things clinicians worry about is missing things, isn't it? Um, how do you think picking up hints and clues can can relate to that idea of missing things? What, what do you think is going on there, Anne? Well, I think clinicians fear missing things, don't they? I think there's a tendency, as we were saying, when something seems straightforward or simple, that clinicians circumvent this idea of asking patients about their own thoughts and concerns and hopes but actually this should be done in every situation and for something to become automatic and something that you do as a clinician all the time then it takes practice mm. so I think in developing these skills you know practice asking every single patient about their own thoughts and hopes and until it becomes second nature and then this will ensure that nothing is missed 
And again, I think the bits that you highlighted, Avril, about the beginning part of the consultation about building rapport and giving patients space often allows patients to tell a story in their own words, which in, in, inevitably includes these ideas of their thoughts and hopes. And the more um, that can be facilitated, then the more that you develop the accuracy and that, again, helps things from being covered and nothing is missed. I think that's really interesting what you're saying there because there's that idea of some space at the beginning where people talk and, and people do sometimes talk about the golden minute and things like that, which is like when you listen to the patient, but it's almost like they think after that you don't need to spend so much time listening to the patient. Whereas actually if you use encouragement like go on, tell me more, is there anything else you were thinking about? Is there anything else you were concerned about? Patients will often give you really large amounts of information with relatively little effort through using fairly, I will not say standardised questions, but questions that explore the patient's perspective, like tell me more, is there anything else you've noticed wrong? What else have you been concerned about? And then you can do those simple closed questions that might tie down specific things, like if somebody's got back pain, saying, does the pain go down your leg? And those kind of things, which clinicians need to do for clinical reasons. But the more you can get the patient to talk freely and listen carefully to all the details they're saying, the less of that closed question you need to do, which is very time consuming in consultations, actually, isn't it? Yeah. And as we progress through the consultation, using that information that you glean in is so helpful then in the explanation and planning phase of the consultation. And it shows empathy and respect and a recognition of people's feelings, um, which obviously helps to, to build the relationship. Yeah, and that building of the relationship isn't just a nice thing in itself, is it? It's the thing that enables the person to trust you enough yeah. that they will follow your advice or that you can discuss a treatment plan with them or that you can collaborate to prioritise certain things. And clinicians do worry about missing things, but what we're talking about here is something that's been called the missed silent misdiagnosis, which means not diagnosing the patient's own position and thoughts and concerns and hopes. And when that's missing, often the management plan doesn't work properly. So, yeah, really understanding where people are coming from is both rewarding personally and in terms of the relationship, and it makes for much better clinical care. Thanks, Anne. Thanks, Apple. Okay, Anne, I'd be interested to know if you've got a recording to talk about that involves somebody asking for sleeping tablets. Yes, there was. Um, I had the opportunity to review a video of a consultation um, where we met Judy. Judy's 57. She works as a support worker in a psychogeriatric service, so she helps to care for patients with dementia. And she sent a message saying, can I talk to somebody about getting some sleeping pills? So initially, the clinician says to Judy that it sounds like there's a problem with her sleeping, and she invites Judy to explain all about this in detail. So Judy comments she's never been a great sleeper. She says, I stay in bed for eight hours, but I often wake up in the night. She says that she's worried about her grown-up family, which is fairly usual, and she manages to fall asleep again. She says she enjoys her work, she walks everywhere, she has no symptoms of depression or anxiety, which the clinician inquires about. She says she's close to her daughters and their families, and she sees them frequently, and that her husband retired last year, and she's pleased now, he does all the cooking. She keeps saying that she wants some sleeping tablets to make me sleep all through the night, especially as none of us are getting any younger. So reviewing the video, the clinician is pretty reluctant to prescribe, as there seems 
not a huge clinical need. And the clinician tries to suggest some sleep improvement strategies, including online CBT to improve sleep. When you watch this, Judy gets more and more frustrated and she keeps repeating that she needs some proper sleep now. And eventually the clinician, I think from not knowing what to do, says, well, we could always get a second opinion from another colleague. And then Judy leaves. And when I reviewed these, this with the clinician in question, they really gave the impression that they felt things really hadn't gone that well. It, it doesn't sound like the... It sounds like there was a bit of information gathering, but it doesn't sound like it concluded that well. So, so what happened next, if anything? So two weeks later, Judy was admitted to hospital, which was a, because her husband had found her at home and she'd fallen asleep while watching TV, but he, he couldn't wake her and so was worried. And then it emerged that she'd been using some sleeping tablets from a source from which we didn't really know where, but possibly the internet. And she'd accidentally taken too strong a dose and this had led to her being unrousable at home. Fortunately, she, she recovered just fine. When a colleague clinician made a follow-up telephone call, then it then was revealed that Judy had seen an article that she'd read in a newspaper, which had really concerned her. And this article said that if you sleep badly, that you're much more likely to get dementia. And because Judy was all too aware of what dementia is like because of her work, she was really quite terrified and wanted to prevent that fate for herself. And the thought process for her had then, then been, I need some sleep. And she really was prepared to take, you know, to do anything really to try and get some sleep. And she'd asked her grandson to go on the internet and source some tablets for her, which she'd taken. All oh, right, so uh, her, her grandson was able to wander off and find something in the far reaches of the web. Yeah. Right, okay. So um, how, how did the clinician end up in this slightly unfortunate situation then? What, what, what happened in the consultation that meant they didn't get to grips with this issue? So the clinician was listening to what Judy said, but wasn't sufficiently attentive to the hints and clues that she gave that really there was something else concerning her. She made that comment, make me sleep all through the night, especially as none of us are getting any younger. And that's true that none of us are getting any younger. But some inquiry as to what she meant by that or what was her thought process around that. That just invited some further exploration, really. So what about um, finding out about uh, Judy's perspective on the sleep issue? I mean, how would that have changed things, do you think? So I think understanding how... Judy has come to feel that sleeping through the night is important as she's getting older. The clinician has not noticed that there's more to this, and, and nor has the clinician really asked about her perspective, um, about the sleep issue. What actually is she worried about? It's fine to ask that as a direct question. What are her concerns about sleep? And I suppose what's she hoping the effect of the sleeping tablets would be? What will that lead to and how will that enable her to feel better? Well, you're right, because there she probably would have talked about dementia. It's mm. obviously something that's on her mind um, and, and that she was hoping sleeping tablets would prevent that, which, of course, isn't actually really the case. And it, it sounds here like there's two opportunities lost here. There's, first of all, Judy's problem isn't really sorted out properly, but also there's a health promotion opportunity lost here because the clinician could have checked uh, her, you know, knowing about her concern about dementia, they could have talked about a range of prevention strategies to prevent dementia, including improving her cardiovascular health and so on. 
And actually, they could have even reassured her that walking everywhere, having lots of social connections with your family and being generally cheerful are actually factors that are already protecting her from dementia. And she may not need to do very much more um, if she's not a smoker and hasn't got diabetes and so on. It, there's nothing much more else you can do about dementia. And sleeping tablets, I think, arguably could make things worse. So um, if somebody wants to improve their skills to, and, and not get themselves into this kind of situation, what just sort of things do you think they should do to learn about better information gathering? So a good start would be to read the chapters in TALC, Module 3, Skill for Effective Information Gathering, which includes helpful skills for active listening and also explain the importance of, the understand, of understanding the patient's own perspective. TALC 3.6 is especially relevant, which covers the skills needed to act effectively on the hints and clues, which we, we said that uh, weren't picked up as effectively in this particular case. TALC 3.7 explains the skills needed to explore the patient's point of view fully. Listening to the podcast and looking at the videos would also be helpful, and discussing this case or any other cases that might be relevant with a supervisor or a mentor, and asking them about their own experiences would also be helpful. I think you're right that working on your listening skills are going to be really important here and I think most clinicians will have examples of where when they haven't asked somebody about their ideas or concerns when the penny has dropped later on they've usually thought well that would have saved me a lot of time and trouble if I'd get on with it and it comes back to this question of the silent missing diagnosis as well which is the misdiagnosis of person's own concerns. Mm. So yeah, in this case, Judy presents with a question about sleeping pills, but her main concern is that she may develop dementia in later life. So when talking with patients who have specific requests, clinicians will find it more fruitful to begin by really understanding the problem that lies behind that request, because it's not a request in isolation. So active listening skills to really explore the patient's perspective and demonstrate to the patient that they've been understood by reflecting back a summary or a paraphrase of what has been discussed can be really helpful too. Yes, I think that's one way of preventing that experience that people often say, don't they, that the doctor or the nurse or the, the paramedic or whoever it was was not really listening to me. And often that is not necessarily because they haven't heard, but they haven't reflected back and said, I think you're saying this, or in summary, it mostly seems to be this, which is so helpful in helping people to feel they've been properly listened to. Do you think there are any other specific things to improve your skills in this? I think practice. I think that it's vital to think about how these skills apply actually to every single patient. Um, we said in the previous case, thinking about sore throats, it's, it's tempting to think this is an inverted comma simple problem. Um, and actually practice means that this becomes second nature. And as we said, actually that makes your consulting much more interesting and enlightening. Um, it helps to build rapport and trust. I'd like to ask a little bit more about when patients say things like, which they often do, um, they say things like, well, you know, or, well, you know, I mean, or they say, well, obviously, that's a thing that people often say when it isn't obvious at all. So... I think in that situation, they haven't really told you what they think yet. So what should the clinician do in that situation? Oh, yes, they're not really, which is essentially no, isn't it? So I think that's really important. I mean, being listening and, and hearing these things is really important. But a powerful thing today to, to do at that point is just to pause and, and use some encouraging phrase, go on, uh, looking at a patient and using you know your body language to encourage them. 
to, to say like I, I'm interested, I'm interested to hear, um, I'm interested to, to hear your perspective. Um, that can often lead to a further explanation of what's really on somebody's mind. Mm. I think this thing about trying to understand somebody's perspective doesn't mean saying to them, what is your perspective? Uh, and thinking you've done the job. It means waiting till they've told you enough information for you to feel you do really understand their perspective and could explain it either back to them with an active listening process or that you could explain it to somebody else, like to know enough. And, and that doesn't mean inferring it, like saying... Uh, like the one with the sore throat guy, you know, oh, I, I, I thought he was worried about his acting skills, his acting voice, but actually checking out what the patient actually really says about their concerns and worries. Doing this will definitely improve clinical care and, and it makes it more rewarding too because it's nice when people say thank you for listening and it's nice when people get better because they've followed your treatment plan because it's suitable for them. So this makes consultations more satisfying and less stressful and better outcomes for everyone. Thank you, Anne. Thanks, Abel. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.